All right, guys, welcome to the Debrief. This is our Debrief after the episode with Luke Grauman. David, um, I think Bangladesh has one of the best macro podcast on the market yeah. these days like these are great episodes our episode mm-hmm. with jim bianco was fantastic our episode mm-hmm. with lynn alden was fantastic this episode was fantastic and i listened to macro episodes from time to time and i gotta tell you like i learned more in these episodes than i do in most anyway i guess that was a big way to pat ourselves on the back but <laughs> it's more about our guests these are just fantastic right. guests who have a good sense of where the market is going and what the potentials are. And uh, yeah, this this episode was great for me. How, what did you think of it? On, on the note, crypto does a lot of things better than non-crypto uh, sides of the world. And it's not just not just our podcast, Ryan. But like, <laughs> I've always been a chill of the fact that like the crypto as an industry gives you a vantage point that you don't get anywhere else. Like you get clarity and thought, you get perspectives. So many things are relevant to crypto, right? You have to understand computer science, you have to understand distributed systems, you have to understand money and finance, you kind of also have to understand history. And then also if we're talking about markets, you also have to understand like global, political, geopolitical stuff. Like you kind of have to understand it all. Uh, and so like as podcasters, when it comes time to talk about macro, uh, like we, we can we, hang, we can hang, we can hang. Like sometimes like the YouTube comments, which are always negative, by the way, uh, <laughs> of the time they're like, David and Ryan are talking about macro. They're not macro experts at all. Like they just need yep. to shut up and, and keep talking about Ethereum. And at some point I'm like, you know, I, I know about macro. Wait a second. Yeah, I, I, I do like... know about macro. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I, I think we know a thing or two. And we, yeah. we certainly uh, know a question. Like the, the questions to ask are questions right. I think a lot of people, at least in crypto, share. But I think a lot of people more generally share. But mm-hmm. I mean, enough, enough shilling ourselves, I guess, <laughs> and shilling crypto. Um, a few points he made. So he said that kind of the why things are going to be really bad. Mm-hmm. I thought this was somewhat unique. Bursting sovereign debt bubble, he said. Our world is based on cheap cheap energy, and that's a bad assumption now. We're going to have expensive energy from here on out. And we have geopolitical tensions right now. Basically, we're in economic war. Like, this is economic warfare. It's like the U.S. is using the U.S. dollar as a weapon. Uh, Russia is using its energy markets as a weapon, right? There's like, it's not Hmm. kinetic war, but there's already economic war happening. And this is good context, I think. But I want to go back. When, like, when I asked him and doubled down on the, hey, Luke, why'd you say bursting? He didn't, like, it's not bursting like the whole world's going to explode and, you know, everyone's going to die and we're going to have a great depression. All markets are going to completely tank. Now, he was just like, specifically, his answer was bonds. The sovereign right. debt side of things are going to massively depreciate in value. Like, not become worthless, but, like, if they lose 50% of their value Mm -hmm. this decade or more, would not be surprised. And he considers that kind of bursting. Uh, I don't know. What what do you think about those three different levers, I guess, or those Mm -hmm. three lenses he has in this space? Yeah, I think the bursting thing is, like, a semantics thing. Like, bursting... And, and letting the air out of the bubble, to me, sounds like the same thing, just like with different levels of severity of the words used. Like we have this sovereign debt bubble that needs to get smaller. And so like, you know, the, the whole like soft landing from the Fed, but also just like it's this bubble. So like, you know, usually bubbles pop. Uh, a burst implies a pop, right? But 
I think it's, it's much more accurate or what he was really saying is like, no, we're just like opening up a hole and we're letting the air out. And what that means is that we are devaluing the debt in real terms. Uh, and so the debt is being repaid in nominal terms by letting it devalue in real terms. So and so like, that's why the same thing as Lynn, except just, I use more, I'm, I'm, I'm Luke and I use I more so. colorful language. Yes. Yeah. And the, the, the adjectives are up for interpretation by the listener, right? Does, does bursting mean violent or does bursting mean just like an outflow of, of air from a bubble? Uh, and so like, there's a little bit of like a semantics issue there, which I, I think, uh, I think is what you, what you're tapping into. I don't yeah. think, I don't think it means like a violent explosion. Although like he also kind of imply, implied that like violent explosions in markets are definitely like on the table. Um, yeah. which is kind in of markets scary. and also in ge geopolitics yeah. as well. I think yeah. he was kind of tuned into that of like economic warfare leading to kinetic warfare and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, which is probably another podcast that I'd like to do in this macro series of like global economic tensions. But right. um, w one thing that was also helpful in this episode, if we juxtapose that to Lynn's, is uh, Lynn's talked about this as being the 1940s, right? And mm -hmm. she, she also said it would be its own thing, of course. Right. But like Luke was less um, ready to say this is going to play out like the 1940s. And his spin on this was in the 1940s, the U.S. was far healthier an right. order of magnitude healthier had so and many like, cards up its sleeve yeah and like and, and, I was, and i was thinking to myself right you know that when i asked lynn the question of like oh so this is like the 1940s except the u.s is the uk right like right. it you know fading empire kind of former global reserve currency status is like but i don't even think he, he, luke would go that far i i don't think it's like the because like with the, the uk situation in the 1940s it was kind of handing off power to an ally at the end right. of the day, right. right? It's just like, here, U.S., like, you take this now. Right. Thank you. Bretton Woods, your responsibility. we all get together. Yeah, yeah they, they helped nominate the U.S. dollar in Bretton Woods as kind of the world reserve currency. It's like sort of a, a whole next step of the ally, uh, the allies winning the war. And now here in the U.S., like, the U.S. doesn't have an ally to hand this to, does right. it? Right. That's, so, what, that's so, what he's saying. Like, unless aliens come down and take it from us. Right? Yes. That is a big difference from the 1940s right. UK and a big difference from the US. And like he, he also said, like the US from a debt perspective is more like a banana republic. It's more like mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a Latin American Tatum, right? mm -hmm. country in the 1980s, right. which is very scary because, of course, you know, he compared this to like uh, Israel's deleveraging the 1980s. Well, they weren't the world reserve currency. Right. So what happens when you try to deleverage a world reserve currency? Uh, I guess we're about to find out if like his predictions hold. Right. And this is kind of why I've been just like so, oh God, like, I mean, I'm no, I don't feel this, but just like there's so many reasons to be, as in I don't feel this emotionally, I'll, I do think it cognitively, is that there are so many reasons to be super bearish right now. Like when the world's reserve currency, like we, we saw what happens in Venezuela or like any other country that has ever had a hyperinflating currency, everything falls apart. Money is a tool to coordinate human and resource, human uh, power, like resources. It's coordination. It is the, the money is the coordinating layer of everything that there is. And when the world reserve currency stops functioning and people start distrusting it and it starts to collapse under a, an inflationary event, like everything goes to shit. Like we already can't 
coordinate our supply chains? How are we supposed to coordinate our, our global economies or even our domestic economies if like no one cares about the money anymore? Uh, and so well, like what, what the world literally falls apart when the money falls apart. I actually didn't realize this either is just kind of the point he was making that, um, the Europeans right now in Europe is kind of, this is a generalization, but I think it's, I think it's directionally very correct is they are inflating. They are issuing more money at a time when money is increasingly needing to be backed by real hard assets right. and energy reserves. Mm -hmm. Right. And he said they were doing like the Weimar, Weimar Republic play of doing that. And so what that's going to cause if you move to the next step is the U.S. either says to its to its allies, the Europeans, like, good luck. Right. You know, like like the U.S. is in a pretty good energy state right now with, you know, being a massive exporter of and again, I'm not huge in energy markets, but massive exporter of um, uh, natural gas. Right. Right. And um, but like the U.S. might be in a position where it has to go bail out the euro and start buying up European bonds, start buying up Japanese bonds mm -hmm. as part of its kind of economic alliance. And the question of like, is there political appetite for the U S to do this? Right. And like, what's the, what's the backlash of that? I, I don't think I, I fully walked through that, that layer of the argument as well. Yeah. And I think that's, if we're going to do another like podcast macro podcast episode, it's really about that question is, is as global economies get like reshuffled, global geopolitical relations also get reshuffled, right? So yes. during this like massive, you know, uh, running out of the tide, like all of a sudden we're going to find out how good of friends are we with Europe? Like, are we that good of friends? How good of friends are we with Japan? Just like all global like relationships, like nation state relationships are going to be tested in this present moment. It's like, well, totally. do you want to protect internally or do you want to protect like your teammates? Right. Like how, how isolationist do you want to get? How, how like, friendly do you want to get? And, and like Russia also not in a bad spot. Right. Cause they've, they've got a bunch of energy too. I think like China and Japan are the biggest importers of national nat natural gas, liquefied yeah. natural gas. I think that's true. Pretty sure that's true. Uh, and so we have like United States and Russia as like the biggest exporters. Uh, so like nice, uh, nice things to have in that present moment. You have China, Japan, and Europe that are the biggest importers. Europe's about to freeze uh, when the winter comes around. And so like all of these relationships are about to be super strained right now. Right. And do they go back to Russia is the question. And if they mm -hmm. do, then Russia is going to demand, continue to demand payment in ruble, which right. props up the ruble. It's just so right. fascinating that this is right. all playing out. It's like, there's a whole geopolitical thing to like understand right. about the macro markets right now. Um, but, but another big theme of this episode is the question of who's the sucker who's going right. to be buying treasuries, right? Who's this? Because like, it is no longer the risk off asset is right. it? And I don't think the Fed has felt this in our lifetime or any time in recent history of like, we got to go find buyers for right. our shit coin. Buy war bonds. Right? Like, Buy war bonds. Seriously. Why, you think of those advertisements and why mm -hmm. was that the case? Because like, you're risking money and why, why did they have to appeal to nationalism? W winning the war, it's because it wasn't on the face of things a great investment. Like it was kind of yeah. a risky investment. Like what if... What if the U.S. loses this war? What are all the other alternatives I could invest in? So, so okay, so we've got this um, 
like this playing out and the question of who's going to buy treasuries mm-hmm. becomes the fed's problem basically or all central banks right. problem and um it's no longer going to be like the boomers right and i can't like how do you get millennials like right. i wouldn't touch no. treasuries are you kidding no, me thanks and other countries are they going to buy your treasuries you think China's especially in the, be- like the domestic political climate no one the right or the left no one feels aligned with their government yeah, so the question of who's going to buy treasuries, mm-hmm. I think, is a, is a massive question. Well, isn't the answer the, the central bank, the Federal Reserve? Maybe, but the answer could also be like, I, I go back to something Lynn kind of alluded to. In the 1930s, executive order, FDR, you can't own gold, right? I don't think it comes to this. Yeah, but I, I think do we think would that, sue them. I, well, so what? So, like, they could, they could drum up, I mean, what they were, do, what they were doing in kind of the social realm of um, people who held on to gold, call them hoarders, right? Like here you are hoarding your wealth. Well, the world around you melts down. And so on the, on the social level, mm. you can kind of like mm. cr- crack away at the store of value mm. narrative. And that could, I'm not saying it will happen to crypto and people probably think this is a bit tinfoil hat, um, but like I think there will be massive political pressure and social pressure to help support your nation and get treasuries back under control, find a net buyer of treasuries. And there, I think once you do yield curve control, you probably also have to start thinking about capital controls in various ways and restricting that level of freedom. If your citizens don't want to store their wealth in treasuries any longer, what do you think about this? I, I think there is, like part of the, some things that we talked about a few times in that episode was like how financialized America is. And so there's like our financial industry is extremely strong. And if we're talking about capital controls around like the financial center of the whole world, there's enough ammo to sue the U.S. government for something like that. And like that's what the Supreme Court will do is they will side with the Constitution, not with like the government. And so if the government passes a law like that it has like capital controls like you are not allowed as an individual allowed to own gold or Bitcoin. Like they'll get, they'll get sued how, come, over that. how come it happened in the 1930s and no one was sued the same constitution then, uh, executive order. I can't remember what the name of it was. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think that's, I think that's something to dive into more. Like I would like to fully understand the history of, of that and why that happened. But I think it was the backdrop of like desperation right. and, we can't have citizens escaping to these to these other store values. Hmm. Anyway, there could be some funky things that that start to happen, as like the U.S. has not felt under threat from other assets at this point in time, and certainly not from crypto. And it will not at one trillion dollars in market value. But what about twenty trillion dollars in market value, and an appreciating crypto market with Bitcoin and Ether leading, and a, like no net new demand buyers for treasuries how will it start to feel about the asset class there right. and like i always go back to like if you're holding crypto now that's probably like, put that in the category of good problems to have because right, it, <laughs> it, it means all of your crypto assets have massively appreciated to the level where they're actually a threat right, right. to a sovereign so i'm not worried about that being like a bearish reason to hold crypto it's probably a bullish reason to hold crypto right. but at the same time i also wonder what's going to happen uh and then there's this other thing which I want to hear your take on, but he gives two paths forward. One is actually a happy path right. with the middle class 
with, with America going back to its roots. Mm-hmm. It's like the 1950s and 1960s. And the other is um, the current trajectory where capital holders, people with treasuries actually win. How would you summarize what he was saying here? And yeah. like, what, what, are the, what, what do you think is more likely? It definitely is fitting in with the whole, is this the end theme? As in like, we have this like current state of America, which we're like the, the central government is like way more powerful than we the, like, I think our founding fathers ever intended. And like at one point in time, there was an American dream, but like no longer is that really the case. And at one point in time, Americans did have their privacy, but no longer is that really the case. Uh, and now it's like uh, the way that he illustrated it is we're coming to a fork on the road where either America is going to take this very formal, we no longer believe in the values that this country was founded on, surveillance state, capital controls, uh, you know, big, big status, big, strong central government. Or the alternative being looks like a lot of freedoms for individuals, like strong middle class, lots of like business development, uh, you know, innovation, et cetera. Uh, that was really felt very emblematic of like the way that this country got founded on in the first place. <laughs> it seems naively optimistic to think that we're just, and he's, he even looks at it. It's like, where it's going to be a slice of the two, but like to think that like, we're going to have like a strong middle class with a bunch of just like burgeoning businesses at the end of this seems a little bit too, too, too nice for what, like all the bad stuff that's happening. So do you think the treasury holders will win or do, or do you, do you think that this is just neither outcome is going to fully happen? Yeah, probably the, probably that one, neither outcome will, will fully happen. It's, um, in these disruptive periods of history, it's crazy how much things can change. Right. Um, I, I, uh, this, this weekend I went to a museum with my family. It's like a museum in uh, Richmond, Virginia, where I live mm-hmm. and they have this whole yeah, like, um, AI family. yeah, yeah, exactly. They have, but they have this whole, um, section for um, these things called Fabergé eggs. Do you know, have you ever seen a Fabergé egg? Yeah, they're like the decorated ones. Yeah, yeah. The, these are like yeah. these very ornate decorated uh, eggs mm-hmm. um, uh, that were created in Russia by this company called Fabergé. And this was like a, a jeweler uh, at its peak. He had like 500 employees, massively successful. Um, you know, jeweler created this Fabergé company and he would create these ornate eggs for uh, wealthy people around the world, including the Russian oligarchy right. uh, uh, and the elites, right? The rulers of Russia. Well, um, you know, the revolution happened, 1917. And the Romanov family, like the czars at the time, murdered, like right. all killed, executed, right. assassinated, right? Um, the owner of Fabergé had to leave the country. The company and all of the capital associated with it was confiscated by the revolutionaries. Completely confiscated. He has to leave the country. He died like two years later. It's crazy to me, like in these tumultuous times, how fast things can happen and how property rights completely go outside of the, like uh, by the wayside. So you think you have a company, you think you have some property rights. Next thing you know, in this course of like a three to five year period of time, you are fleeing the country and, and you have nothing. And it's gone. And it's all gone. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, like, there could be some places in the world where this sort of thing happens. And where do people store their value and flee? If, like, Fabergé guy, he tried to, he went to Switzerland, right? But he could take nothing with him, I assume. Basically nothing with him. What do you do if you have to flee your country? What, what do you store that in? How is it different if we have the ability to, like, store our brain wallets right. and, and move from one border to another? 
I know this is like a dark timeline to be thinking of these things, but Mm -hmm. it goes back to like, what are property rights and what are the most secure places to actually store your wealth and store your value? And I think in this decade, people are going to start to be thinking about that a lot harder. And I got to say, I feel very safe with, with crypto assets. If, if you were thinking in that sort of adversarial environment, what would you possibly, you can't buy stock. What's the good of, you can't buy property. Like if you have to flee your country, the only avenue for you is like gold that you can bring, store somehow, yeah. or crypto. Right. And it's going to be crypto. And th- throughout both these podcasts with Lynn and, and Luke, um, I, I was just conflicted by, wow, there's chaos in the short term. Once all of this shakes out, crypto is in such a good position. Like, it might get wrecked. Like, who knows? Maybe the worst possible scenario uh, in the global macro markets is like, I don't know, fam- literal famine in Europe and uh, it, get, it freezes over. And like, not to mention all other developing nations. Like, no, no one gets food anymore. Like, m- 1930s level depression. 1930s level depression. Like, and then in that case, like, crypto's going down like another 80%. Once we get out of it, though, you can bet your ass that like crypto is the new financial system moving forward and that, that like crypto assets become the most valued assets on the planet. Like, boy, you just have to get to that point first. <laughs> Yes, which is interesting because um, we, we spent that entire episode and like at the end of it, mm-hmm. we we're like, oh, what assets should we buy, Luke? He's like, I would have some dollars. Yeah. <laughs> like you should have some cash on hand, right. which is interesting because well, his, he, he his answer was completely unopinionated. It was get, have some yeah. dollars, have some real estate, have some equities, have uh, some gold. Like he's yes. like, okay, so you don't have like literally have the most unopinionated portfolio possible. Yeah, agreed. But like the ability to, you know, I guess switching between them is very important yes. in this kind of time period. Um, last thing to talk about is maybe um, Bitcoin, his take on Bitcoin. So he, he's very clearly um, Bitcoin or through and through yeah. of like to the exclusion of all other crypto assets, which for bankless listeners, obviously, you know, like we are more bullish on other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he seemed to really love this link between Bitcoin yeah. and energy with proof of work. What do you make of that? And that you could kind of see it mm-hmm. the way he was thinking about, well, we're distilling like the ruble down to it's an energy currency. And so in order to have a hard asset, it has to be supported by energy. Right. And what is Bitcoin? It is like tokenized energy, isn't it? Through proof of work. You can almost see that, that like mm-hmm. those wheels spinning in his head. And that's why he kind oh, of. Oh, that was explicit. He explicitly said yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and right, this is think? chanted by Bitcoiners. Like Lynn Alden says this, like, this is one of the things where like, no, wrong that's not how it works <laughs> that's where you, you that's how you can correct a macro uh, yes person. yeah as soon as you start to talk about crypto like all more. like yeah. the dollar we call it the petrodollar because the dollar a dollar will get you one dollar's worth of petrol uh, and that's what he's saying is about the ruble like well russia produces gas you can have to buy that gas in the ruble therefore in order to buy gas you must have rubles if you own a Bitcoin, you don't get any energy. It's a one-way street. It, it, you consume energy to get Bitcoins, to produce Bitcoins. You do not consume Bitcoins to get energy. It, it, it's a one-way flow. It doesn't go yes. in reverse. And That's so, a great point. And so, like, this is... All Bitcoiners fall for this. I don't understand how, all, like, all the Bitcoiners are like, yeah, like, Bitcoin is, like, tokenized energy. No, it's not. It's just 21 million units. Like there's no association between energy. Energy is just this filter to figure out how to produce energy. Gold, you can't deconstruct gold and receive energy. 
Like it's also the same thing, like yes, it costs a lot of energy to produce gold, but it is not backed by energy. Like it, it, that thing, that doesn't make any sense. Totally, it's what is gold back, see, see he was going back, back to like, and then, and then that's also why I liked gold because it, it takes energy to take it out of the ground. But the energy it takes to, to take gold out of the ground is not the value of gold. Right. Right? Like the value of gold is the mimetic. Right. The like a bunch of people mm -hmm. historically believe that gold is a valuable store of value and money. Therefore, socially, it has value. It's not like the raw cost of energy production. That's not the the bottom layer right. of gold or, or else gold would be worth a whole lot less. Right. So yeah. So that connection is love this association and it just falls. So it falls apart so quickly to me. A separate, separate podcast. Maybe um, one last thing we didn't get to talk about on the, on the podcast, but um, was kind of that, that tweet thread that you mentioned oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the well. case for moving forward. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on it, but Jordy Alexander, he, he was the guy who was bearish yeah, on, on our, on our uh, Terra. Terra. Episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the last time we had him on. He was totally right. Yeah. You kind of wonder if he's right about this. So he says this in a tweet, every road I try to follow leads to the same place. It's almost inevitable. The dollar is too strong. Economy is headed for a downturn, need to ease, but can't because of inflation. So what's the solution? Tons of dollar printing, but only through soft universal basic income and handouts for the lower class. And he goes and he says, here's why. And he gives a whole bunch of reasons as to why. But he pre presents this as being kind of the ultimate solution that nation states will converge upon to quell the inflationary concerns, the economic concerns, the recession, depression concerns, all of it is UBI. You print money. And instead of doing the quantitative easing for the, you know, the wealthy capital, people with capital, you give it to um, people who don't have much in the way of capital. What do you think of this? Uh, I, th I mean, this seems like the logical conclusion that produces the least amount of suffering. As a result of that, do I think that that is what will ultimately be decided on by the Federal Reserve and others? No, they're probably going to mess it up somehow. I hope this is where we go. This makes the most sense to me. Uh, because like, you give out UBI to the lower, lower middle class, low, low class and lower middle class, then like, they become big consumers so that the, we, can, like, we have sufficient demand to not go into a complete recession. Uh, and, and it's more like, it's basically like targeted inflation. We have to inflate, but we need to do it in the best possible ways. And what are the best possible ways to still have an economy Without, that, without it completely falling apart, is you give money to the people that would otherwise die, more or less. Uh, and that would be like the lower, and, and lower, lower class and lower middle class. So that it sound, I, I understand how Jordy came to this conclusion. I'm there too. He, he says, to clarify in the soft UBI, it's less stimmy checks and cash and more targeted handouts. Like gas is too high. Every house below 150K in income gets $200 per, per month in a gas card and $500 a grocery venture. Right. Good luck voting against this and hoping to win at the polls. Right. It sounds also a little, um, I don't know. Does it sound a little Soviet Union to you? Like, here's your voucher for the thing. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the bad parts of Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was like, you know, the totalitarianism. <laughs> if we take out the totalitarianism out of the Soviet Union, all of a sudden it becomes not so bad. I just, I, I, I think that um, UBI is interesting to me. So I feel so um, of two minds on it, right? Mm. One is I, I totally get the point that's probably the best way to get out, like to 
get out of the state that we're in. But the other is like, what if, what if the nation state starts to put all of these, you know, attach all of these strings to receival of UBI, right? Like you have to do X, Y, Z and you're, you know, have, if you show up at this protest, then no more UBI right. check. Like, does it also give the nation state much more power, power right. over, over the population? And then once you start to administer that, like you can't administer that via stimmy checks. You're not like, you almost have to have a central bank digital currency, a digital system in order to more efficiently distribute this. Right. right. And so when you get there, then you're kind of adopt, you know, you're going down a path right. that I worry about. They won't be doing UBI via permissionless USDC airdrops to your Ethereum wallet. That will not be how it happens. I'm going to say, I'm going to say they're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like, basically like our rights are going to have to be preserved by the courts, um, which is like a, a scary prospect. I think of many people out there are like, I would not like the courts to be in determine of my future. seems timely to bring that up at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, where, where else, where do we go next on our macro journey, David, any boxes unchecked geopolitics uh, feels like one geopolitics, I think is the big one. Um, uh, so I can't remember who I was talking to, uh, but they were, there was somebody I was trying to get in contact with Ray Dalio's team, uh, to get Ray Dalio on the show. And they were like, yeah, appa- apparently all of Bridgewater like loves bankless and like listens to what? bankless. Yeah. But they okay. can't get, uh, they can't do a show with us because they don't, the PR just isn't their deal. Uh, so they, there's like one degree of separation away from, from people. The, so we're almost there? Is that what you're telling we're me? We're almost there, but like, <laughs> yeah. There's a chance? You tell me there's a chance. No, no, well, there's always a chance. Eventually Ray Dalio will, will come on, but it's not, it's not like we just haven't gotten on their radar yet. We're totally on their radar. They're just like, no, we can't do that because That's of start. That's the PR. Yeah. You know, stage one. Stage uh, one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're in the first stage. Okay, so geopolitics. Mm-hmm. What about energy markets? Do we need to understand this more? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel pretty good about those. Yeah, so do I. It, it would be uh, hard to do energy markets without geopolitics. Those feels like the same thing. Okay. Those feel like the same well, thing. a few more things to cover here. But, guys, we hope you are getting a macro education here. And uh, thanks so much for, for hanging with us. This has been the Bankless Premium Podcast. Thank you for being Bankless Premium members.